Well, you know, we bring these opportunities in front of us because we want to encourage each other. You know, we want, to, we want to find ways that we can add value to the community so that we can grow in our own spiritual gifts and in our effectiveness in reaching our community uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and so we want to stimulate spiritual growth. Uh, another way that we want to kind of stimulate spiritual growth is by having the right type of conversations. By asking questions and having conversations that are substantial and that really matter. And so uh, we're going through a series right now called The Key Questions, where we're trying to identify questions that are really important. And really as believers who want to be maturing our relationship with Jesus, that we want to be asking of ourselves and each other. And so we started a couple weeks ago looking at these five questions. We asked the first question, how am I being changed by Jesus? Uh, and then we asked the second question, how am I being discipled and who am I discipling? Last week, we asked the question, where are you experiencing life-giving community? And this week, we're going to be asking the question, who are you sharing Jesus with? We'll wrap up the series next week by asking the question, what needs am I meeting? But this week, who am I sharing Jesus with? In order to kind of dive into that question and examine it a little bit, I want to take you to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Okay, it's one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Let's go ahead, check it out together. Luke writes, Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were upset, okay? They were upset because they had standards. There were things that you did and things that you didn't do. There were people who you associated with, and there were people you just did not associate with, because if you started associating with people you're not supposed to associate with, well, you know what would happen, right? People would start to whisper, people would start to say things. Their, their trust in you would be shaken. Your position could be compromised. You just didn't associate with certain people. And they're looking over, and here's Jesus associating with tax collectors and sinners. Even more than that, he's eating with them. You know, it's one thing to pass them by in the marketplace. You know, it's just a hazard of life in a community. But to actually receive them to your table, to dine with them, to have conversations with them, to get to know them, I mean, that's just a bridge too far. You just didn't do that. And so they're asking the question, they're looking at him with disdain, Jesus, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why would you do this? And Jesus, he answers them by telling them a parable. It's a parable comprised of three stories. 
Sometimes it's erroneously thought as three separate parables. It's not. It's one parable comprised of three stories. We're going to look primarily at just the first story this morning. Okay, And you know, when Jesus tells a story, he's a master storyteller. So as he tells the story, he brings you into the story, you know. You can feel the emotion of it all. You can picture it as if you were there. And so he's telling this to the Pharisees, and he's drawing the Pharisees into the story. And as we read it, we kind of get drawn into the story ourselves. Because Jesus is saying, suppose you have a hundred sheep, and one of them wanders off. Will you not leave the 99 in the open country and go to look for the one that wandered off? And you know, as we're drawn into the story and we're reading it today, you know what our answer usually is? No, I'm not doing that. Like, I got, I got, if I'm there and I'm looking in the open country and I'm counting my sheep, 96, 97, 98, 99, that's it, 99? Like, okay, well, that's too bad. I've lost one. But I'm not going to risk 99 and leave them in the open country and just go off to try to find one because then one might, I might lose more. I don't want to do that. That's how we think. When we put ourselves in the story, we look and we say, you know what? That's the cost of doing business. You know, you lose one. It's a bummer. It's too bad. But maybe you'll make it up with the next herd. It's the cost of doing business. Listen. As Jesus invites the Pharisees into the story, they're not thinking that way. The first thing they're thinking, though, to be honest with you, they're thinking, you want me to relate to a shepherd? Like, no way. When, when they're telling Jesus, hey, you're eating with tax collectors and sinners, you know who the sinners are a lot of times? Shepherds. They're like bottom, near bottom of the totem pole, okay? These are dishonorable people. They have a reputation for lying and stealing and all kinds of stuff. And they're unclean. They're ceremonially unclean. There's all kinds of issues with shepherds. In fact, in just a couple of weeks, we'll be talking about why it was so incredible and so amazing that Jesus' angelic birth announcement was delivered to shepherds of all people. And so the, the Pharisees, they're hearing this. They're thinking, you want me to put my mind in the place of a shepherd? You want me to think like a shepherd? And so they're already offended. But Jesus, he pulls them into the story. And as they're pulled into the story and they hear it, they know how life works in a community. They know how life works in the village. They know how shepherding works back in those days. And what happened back in those days was, well, not even a rich person had 100 sheep, okay? A rich person in a village might have 15. And what would happen is there would be a, a, a village pen, and you would put the sheep in the pen at nighttime. And then during the day, you'd take them out into the open country. But it's all the village. It's all the community putting all their sheep in the pen. And then they would hire for a 100. They'd hire two to three shepherds to look after those sheep. And they would want to hire shepherds from the village. You didn't want to hire outside shepherds because you just didn't trust shepherds. But if there was a shepherd from your village, even though he's kind of bottom of the social class, at least he has to look you in the eye, you know? At least he knows you. You know them. So you want to hire shepherds from the village. Now listen, there wasn't a lot of rules about shepherding, okay? But there was one dominant rule. Don't lose sheep, okay? That's pretty much it. Don't lose sheep. So if one of them is gone, if one of them has wandered off, 
in those days, you know what they're thinking? Well, yeah, I would leave. I would go to find the one. That's, that's the honorable thing to do. That's the right thing to do. It's the just thing to do. This is what you would do. See, the Pharisees, they would answer it completely different than we would because they know the culture. They know the community. They know that if they go back to that village and the person whose sheep it was says, hey, you lost my sheep? And they had to say, yeah, I did. Well, did you go look for it? No. They, they don't want to be able to say that, right? They want, well, at least I looked for it, right? At least I gave it a good effort. I looked all over. I don't know where. I don't know what happened to it. If an animal got it, what? I have no idea. You want to be able to answer that. Why? Because you know the faces, you know the names, you know the families. You know that that sheep, wool, that's clothing for some family. The sheep, that meat, that's food for some family. You know the importance that it is to some family because it's faces and names. When we read the story, oh, it's, just, it's just numbers and ratios, right? It's just statistics. I got 99, they're safe, one's gone. That's not bad. You know, I can live with that. That's, not, that's okay. I can live with that ratio. That's all right. It's kind of like acceptable losses in wartime, you know? I mean, somebody sitting behind a spreadsheet somewhere at a desk, they might look and say, you know what? Okay, in order to win the war, if we lose this many soldiers, that would be acceptable losses. But if you know those soldiers, if you know those brave men and women, and you know their names, you know their stories, you know their families. You never think so cavalier as to say something like that, right? You know, it's not just acceptable loss. I mean, these are families. These are, these are people. See, one of the things that we have to be able to do as a church is to replace, like, the statistics with names, with faces. In, in the church world, I get just about every week, like updates about uh, percentages and statistics and this many people in America today regularly attend church and here's how it's on the decline and here's how many people have left the church since COVID and they just haven't come back and here's the stats of Generation Z and it's the least believing generation we've ever seen in our culture. And you get all this stuff. You know, but it's one thing when it's just statistics, you know. It's one thing when it's just kind of ratios and all this. But if you actually think about the names, about the people, well, that changes everything. Jesus, in John chapter 9, he calls himself the good shepherd. Okay? And you know how he defines a good shepherd? I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Right? They recognize my voice. They know me. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. They're not just statistics. They're souls. They're not, they're not just numbers. They're names, right? These are people who Jesus created. And so when we hear statistics sometimes in the church, one of the things that we need to do, we need to replace the statistics with names, with faces, with people who we know need Jesus more than they need their next breath. And listen, I know that some of us come from a tradition in the church where uh, it's been a tradition of almost like legalism, right? And there's been a weight of guilt and shame that sometimes fosters upon you. And sometimes you feel like you're there and the, and the pastor's just kind of holding you over the fire of hell like a marshmallow on a stick, right? And hey, we're just going to sing as many stanzas as just as I am until some sinner repents here, okay? And you feel that. It's like, oh, man, I don't want to make anybody feel that. 
I don't, I've just made the decision. I don't want anybody to ever feel like that guilt, that weight, that, that pressure, because it's so uncomfortable. And sometimes they, we think that, and I understand that. But listen, you know where the conversation often starts? It's not holding somebody over a fire. The fires of hell, like a marshmallow on a stick. You know where it often starts? Just the change in your own life, where people are noticing, man, you look different. There's something different about you. You're not the same man. You're not the same woman as you used to be. Last week, we just mentioned, kind of brushed over a little bit, uh, Peter and John, is how, they're, how they're walking along in Jerusalem, and they heal the lame man there. You know, that started quite the uproar. There's a big conversation that begins to take place, and the Pharisees, they're all upset, and they're complaining, and they're asking all these questions. By whose authority did he do this? By what power did this happen? How could this have happened? And then you know what? Luke, he just, he just inserts in the book of Acts, this is a wonderful statement. The man who was lame was standing right there with them. You, know, you, you can have all the arguments you want to have. You can say whatever it is you want to have. But at the end of the day, here's the reality. In the morning, the man was lame. By the end of the day, he's standing up. You cannot argue with that. You remember Jesus when he met the blind man? You remember this one? The man had been blind from birth, okay? He hadn't been able to see since birth. And then Jesus sees him one day, and he heals him. It's on the Sabbath, though. And because it was on the Sabbath, the Pharisees are having a conniption about it. And they're asking him all kinds of questions. They're asking his parents all kinds of questions. By what power did he do this? Is this demonic? Is he a sinner? You know, well, how did this happen? Tell me the story again. And you know what the man finally says? I don't know about all that. All I know is this. I was blind, and now I can see. You can't argue with that. You know what you can't argue with? is a changed life. When somebody looks at you and they know, you are not the same man, you are not the same woman that I used to know. You're different. There's something different about how you live. There's something different about what you value, about your purposes in life. There is something different. You can't argue with that. And so what, what tends to happen is we look sometimes, and we just want to so blend into the world that we don't stand out. You know, well, I just don't want anyone to notice me. I want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. We can just blend in. But listen, if you're living life for Jesus, he changes you. And as he changes you, people begin to notice because you're not the same man. You're not the same woman. And so they're asking questions. You know, why, why is the difference? So they're noticing things. And you'll hear comments about how, how you handle conflict. You know, everyone else, they talk bad about people behind their back, but you actually go to people and have honest conversations with them. You, know, you handle conflict differently. There's something about your marriage and the way that you interact with your spouse. It's just, I don't see many marriages like that. You actually seem like you love one another. You know, there's something different about how you interact with your kids. You know, I see, I notice your kids and your family, and, 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 they're, and they're such, you know, sweet kids, great kids, and, you know, that's How? Right, and sometimes it's a statement, sometimes it's advice, right? They see you, they see how you act, they see your work ethic, and they're asking questions, what do you think, what about this? Sometimes it's a compliment. You know, it doesn't always look the same. But all those statements, all those questions, what they're saying is, there's something different about you. And you can just give them the nuts and bolts answer, right? Oh, well, thank you so much, you know, for saying that. Or, well, here's my advice. But you know what it is? It's an opportunity for you to share the change that's taking place in your own life. That's what it's opening up the door to, is why are you different? That's what they're wanting to know. Why do you stand out? 
Listen, when you live for Jesus, you should stand out. You stand out by living for Jesus. And when you do, your life should generate some questions. One of the things that's frustrating to me right now in our culture is that our culture is asking a whole lot of questions for which Jesus is the answer. You know, they're asking questions like, what's my identity? Who am I? What what am I supposed to do in life? What is the meaning of life? Where's satisfaction and fulfillment and joy in life? How do I experience that? What, What would bring that? And you know what? The best the world has to offer, the best the world has to offer is just like, well, what feels good to you? Try that. And then if it doesn't feel good after a while, well, try something else. You know what it is? Trial and error. That's all it is. Trial and error. Try this. Feels good. Keep doing it. If it doesn't feel good, try something else. Trial and error. You know what the world doesn't tell you? It all ends in error. It all ends in error. And after a while, you, you, you got all the error just kind of hanging over you. And you're haunted by it. And so then what happens? Well, then, then I want to just perform and I, w- I want you to validate me because I need some kind of validation. Or I got to pretend that I'm better than I really am so that you'll think I'm something because I need somebody to think I'm something. And I want to cover up all the shame and all the hurt and all the fear and all the anxiety and all the depression and all the worry. I don't want, you don't need to know about all that. Because I want to feel like I'm somebody. You know, I have friends in real estate that they tell me that you know the value of something by what someone will pay for it. You know, that's how you know what something's worth. What will somebody pay for it? You know what you're worth? Do you? See, when your deed was due, Jesus paid for you with his life. When you were in the midst of your sin, when you were enemies of God, he died for you. That tells you about your value. That tells you about your worth. You don't need validation by performing or pretending or any of this. You find your validation. You find your identity, which leads to purpose and everything else through Jesus Christ. That's where you find it. And when you know that, it changes things. It changes how you live. He begins to change you. You know, the best the world can say is, I like you, right? I like that post on Facebook, like. And so we can work so hard for likes. But when you're validated by Jesus, when you're validated by the cross of Christ, when you're blessed day in and day out by his presence in your life, when you're walking in the fruit of the Holy Spirit and it's evident in how you live, that kind of qualitative difference in your life It opens doors because you're standing out by living for Jesus and it opens doors to all kinds of gospel conversations because there are people out there who are lost and they see it and they say, man, I'm struggling, but you have something that I would like. Have you ever been lost? Have you ever been lost? He said, maybe maybe you say, no, I've never been lost. I got GPS. I'm going to be lost. Listen, when GPS loses you, you really know you're lost, okay? I mean, that's just the reality. But um, it's not a comfortable feeling to be lost. Because when you're lost, you know how it is, seconds begin to feel like minutes. Minutes begin to feel like hours. It's a disorienting feeling. It's an uncomfortable feeling. But have you ever been lost and not even know you're lost? 
See, if you're lost, you don't even know you're lost. You can just keep on doing whatever it is you're doing. It doesn't even bother you because you don't even know that you're lost. About two years ago, right at this time, I was at a Christmas town, Bush Gardens with Pierce, and you know, just kind of Father Sunday around a lot of time, a uh, fun time. We had gotten these big soft pretzels, and we had walked over, and we were watching the big Christmas tree, you know, and they had this like synchronized music going on and everything. We're just all staying around, and it was a sea of people. It was packed, and we're just standing there watching it. And then the show ends, you know, the music ends and you know, a little break. And I look down right to where Pierce had been standing and he's not there. And it's just panic, right? Because there is a sea of people. There is a crowd of people. And I'm looking around. I don't see him anywhere. I start walking this way. I don't see him. It's dark. I turn around. I do a 180. I start walking right back in the other direction. I don't see him anywhere. I begin to retrace my footsteps of where I had come from. And I'm not seeing him. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see him. He's sitting on a bench, finishing up his soft pretzel. Did he know he was lost? No, he didn't have a clue. But listen, when I ran over to him, and he saw the relief on my face, and I squeezed him tight, you know what he knew? The joy of being found. He knew the joy of being found. And and I experienced that joy, right? Because there he is. I got him back. He's found. He's mine. He's safe. And then it's not enough just to keep it, you know? It's not enough just for me and him to have the moment. Then the first thing, first chance I get to call Steph, right? I'm calling her and I'm telling her the story. And if she hears the story, what's happening? She's reliving it all, right? She feels the panic of him missing. She feels the the tension of of the search when he's sought after. And she feels the relief and the joy of him being found, and the celebration that he's safe. Lost, sought after, found, rejoice. That's what you see in this story. See, the Pharisees are brought in, uncomfortably so. They would not want to picture themselves as a shepherd, but now they're in the story. And as Jesus brings them into it, what do they begin to feel? Oh, they begin to feel the excitement of finding the lost sheep. And they find the sheep, and what are they going to do with it? They're going to throw it up over their shoulders, tie its legs around them, and they're going to carry it. It doesn't matter if the sheep probably weighs about 70 pounds. There's excitement as they go back into the village, and they tell the village, hey, I found the sheep that was lost. And then what happens? The whole village is celebrating. See, it's, it's a feeling that we all know, lost sought after, found, rejoiced over. But then Jesus adds this statement. You know, they can feel it all, but then Jesus adds this statement. I tell you the truth. Heaven will rejoice over the one sinner who repents rather than the 99 righteous who don't think they need to. See, that's the problem for the Pharisees. They don't understand the statement. That goes right over their head. Why? Because they're the 99. They don't think they need to. They're just looking at that. And there's, no, no, you don't associate with that one, Jesus. So Jesus follows it up. Tells them another story. Okay, that, that didn't connect. Let, let's try again. Here's another story. Here's a woman. You know, it was bad when you had to imagine yourself being a shepherd, but now you got to imagine yourself being a woman. I mean, can you imagine what Jesus is putting the Pharisees through? Okay, there's a woman. She has 10 silver coins. 
One of them is lost. Presumably, these are dowry coins okay, that she's going to use for her marriage. These are important coins. What's she going to do? She's going to turn her house upside down to find that coin. Every cushion, everything is going everywhere. She's going to find the silver coin. And Jesus says, when she finds it, what does she do? She calls her friends. She calls her family. She calls her neighbors. You got to celebrate. I found the coin. And then Jesus gives you that I tell you statement again. I tell you the truth. The angels in heaven rejoice when just one sinner repents. Then Jesus follows it up with a third story. It's all the same parable. Well, let let me try it one more time. Suppose there's a father, and he has two sons. And the younger son comes to the father and says, Dad, can I go ahead and have my share of the inheritance now? He's basically saying, Dad, you're dead to me. I just want, can I just go ahead and take my cut and live how I want to live? And the father, probably heartbroken, he acquiesces to the son's request. He says, fine, here's your share of the inheritance. And so the younger son, he takes his share and he goes off far away to a faraway land. He squanders it all on wild living. And after a while, he ends up in a pigsty, eating pig slop, what pigs eat. Listen, no Jew eats pig. And they especially don't eat what pigs eat. Okay, I mean, this is as low as it gets. And this is where he's at. And he's there, and he's bothered by all this. And so finally, he just says to himself, you know what? If I went home, I mean, even my father's servants have it better than I've got right now. I mean, this is terrible. And so he starts to head home. And as he's heading home, he's just rehearsing this speech that he's going to give to his father. And you can imagine that he's working this through in his mind. How am I going to say this? How am I going to present this just right? Okay, hey, father. I've I've sinned against you, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you just make me like one of your servants? And so he's memorized the speech, he's walking and walking, probably saying it over and over and over again. And then the long journey is almost complete. You know what the father's doing? Scanning the horizon. He'd been looking for his son all this time. His lost son is sought after. And he sees him in the horizon and he knows that's my boy. He might look a little different than when he left. Maybe a little hunched over. Not as confident and cocky as he was. But there's no doubt about it. That's my son. And so what does he do? You know, in that culture, you know what you would expect the father to do? Hey, You said I was dead to you, you're dead to me. And you would turn your back on the son. That's what would be expected. What does this father do? He girds up his garments and he runs to his son. And he embraces him and he kisses him. And as he's doing this, the son begins the speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you. And the father's having none of it. Come, put a robe on him, put sandals on his feet, a ring on his finger. Kill the fatted calf. My son who was dead is alive. My son who is lost is found. So you don't have the I tell you statement in this story. You just have it demonstrated. The heart of father rejoicing over his son who's been found. You, You look at those three stories 
And you see the ratios, don't you? You see the numbers? 99 sheep who are safe, one sheep who is lost. Nine coins that are safe, one coin that is lost. One son who is safe, one son who is lost. You see the statistics. You see the ratios. Do you see what stays the same? The one. 99 to 1, 9 to 1, 1 to 1. It doesn't matter the ratio. It doesn't matter the statistic. It's the face. It's the name. It's the story. It's that one person who needs Jesus. And then what happens when just that one repents? What happens? Oh, in the first, all of heaven celebrates. In the second, the angels throw a party. And in the third, the heart of the Father bursts with joy over the Son. Have you ever been the one? Have you ever been the one? Because if you have, you know what Scripture tells us? Heaven celebrated over you. The angels threw a party over you. The heart of Father God bursts with joy over your salvation. This is the greatness of our God's salvation and what he gives. And this is how much rejoicing happens when just one who is lost is found. Lost, sought after, found, rejoiced. See, we understand that. We, we get that. And so now the question comes, who's the lost person in your life who you're praying for? Who's the lost person in your life who you're having gospel conversations with? Who are you sharing Jesus with? Because when you're the one, you understand the joy of being found. You understand the excitement of it all, the good news of it all, and good news has to get out. You know what the Pharisees couldn't get over? Well, I never really felt like that. Why? Because they were the 99. They were the 99 righteous who needed no repentance. So why am I going to go hang out with the one? You know how Jesus winds up the parable? In the story of the lost son, it's the older brother looking at his father's reaction to his younger brother, and he's saying, Dad, why are you doing all this for your deadbeat son? Look how he dishonored the family. I mean, look, look how he stained our reputation. and everything. I mean, why are you going to make a fuss over him? You wouldn't even do this for me. And here I had, I've been faithful, I've been righteous, I've been good. See, when you're the 99 who are righteous and you think you need no repentance, you don't care about the one. When you've been the one and you know I was lost, but God sought after me through his son, Jesus Christ, and now I've been found, and I am celebrated. All of heaven has celebrated over me. The angels have thrown a party over me. The heart of the Father God has been moved over me because I've been found, not of my own doing. 
It's all glory to him. But good news like that, you just can't get over. You got to share with someone. If you've been the one, then you share. And so right now, I know a lot of you are thinking right now about that one in your life. About that, that friend, that family member, that, that coworker, that neighbor, who they need Jesus more than they need their next breath. So I'm going to pray in a moment, but, but, but right now I just want to give you the opportunity to pray for them. And maybe you're thinking, you know what, Steve? I've never been the one. I don't, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. I've never felt like heaven is celebrated over me. I've never felt like the angels would ever throw a party for me, much less the heart of God celebrate, rejoice over me. Well, then you repent. Talk to him right now. And that's exactly what will happen in heaven with the angels with the heart of the Father, that you were brought into right relationship with him. Let's take a moment. Pray for those who need Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you because we know what it's like to be the one. We know what it's like to be lost, to be sought after, to be found, and to be rejoiced over. And God, we know people, and they're not just statistics, they're not just numbers, they're not just ratios, they're people with names and faces and families and stories. And God, we know how much they need you. And so God, we we pray on their behalf. And we pray that perhaps you would use us, your church, to be the ones who get to share the good news of your gospel that they would know the excitement of being sought after, found, rejoiced over in all of heaven by the angels and even by you. God, help us to be your messengers of good news you call us to be. We need your help. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.